Anybody that did not get a book last week? Seal, I gave you all a book last week, didn't I? Okay. Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. That's fine. Well, good morning. Let's see. Jane Ann, did you get a book last week? You're going to go sing? I'm still giving you a book in case you don't. Sometime. Sometime in the future. We got enough that... And it is awesome. Okay. All right. Did, um, how many, well, I don't, I'm not going to do a show of hands. Hopefully, everyone got to read the introduction to this book that had a book. Those of you that got one today. Uh, I would encourage you to read the introduction. A lot of times we'll skip the introduction, go to the first chapter, but uh, I think the introduction is a wonderful setup uh, to where Brother Reeves is going with this, um, with this consideration of the Trinity. Uh, any of you that did read the introduction, I'm just curious, what, what would you say... Based on your reading, what would you say is his rationale for the subtitle of the book? Subtitle of the book is An Introduction to the Christian Faith. Why would he use that as a subtitle for a book titled Delighting in the Trinity? Because it's the basis of the Christian faith. Now we'll do a show of hands. How many of you learned that in your formative years? How many of us were exposed to that as the gospel was presented to us? We do have one, praise God. I am not in that group. I am not in that group. My exposure to Trinity was the Word and kind of a long silence in some senses after the word. Not, not in the sense of we didn't understand Father, Son, Spirit, but at, at least for me there was a big disconnect in terms of being able to understand why and how there was a oneness there, in what sense there was a oneness there. Because Christianity is called one of the monotheistic religions, right? Last time I checked, monotheistic means one God. One God. So how did all that translate? I think, frankly, I kind of parked my brain over to the side and said, somebody somewhere worked that out, and I'm glad they did. And I got to, you know, think about it in terms of maybe the three forms of water and some things of that nature, how one thing could be three things and, 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 that, sort of, and that sort of idea. But on page 18, the last page of the introduction, in a, in a subsection that is titled, The Shocking Joy, 
This is what Michael Reeves says. The triune being of God is the vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. How many of you have felt that the Trinity was the vital oxygen of your Christian life and joy? Well, I'm saying now. I'm good. I'm good with now. And, and I will say for those who see it now, was that always the way you saw it? Right. So that's why I think this book is worth thinking through because this book is thinking through really what the Bible says about Trinity and about its implications. So, the introductory section of this thing is titled, Here Be Dragons. Does anybody have any idea where that came from? Here be dragons. Medieval? Okay, the, the deal is when you would look at an, if you looked at an antique map of the world, and I'm talking about real antique, there would be sections of the map that might actually be inscribed with the words, here be dragons. And I don't believe most of, the, most of the time that they thought literally that there were dragons. But what did that mean? If you saw that on a map, what would you infer from that, even if you hadn't thought much about medieval maps or, or ancient maps? What would you think about that, that idea, that concept? Danger. Danger. Don't go there. Exactly. You're about to run into something that, that you don't know anything about. And you don't know what you're about to sail into, step into, or what have you. Right? And that for most of my life was the way that I parked the Trinity kind of over to the side and let it stay there. Yep. Which is not in Scripture. I think that that's a piece of it. In fact, I don't even think it necessarily is a piece of it just for folks from the Restoration heritage. Bible things and Bible ways and Bible things with Bible names. Yeah, in fact, we had that edition of the songbook once upon a time, didn't we? Yeah. I remember being in churches that had the book that had changed Blessed Trinity, Blessed Eternally. God overall and Blessed Eternally. It didn't say God in three persons, Blessed Eternally. It said God overall and blessed eternally. That was, a, that was maybe the most used songbook in rural churches of Christ for sure for maybe 20, 25 years. So it has certainly been an issue in our 
in, in our dominant heritage of the folks in this room. But this guy doesn't, probably doesn't know a thing about the church of Christ. He's in England. And one of the things that's kind of neat about the, the people who are doing evangelism in England is they really have to be on their game. I don't know if you read this guy's uh, bio, but it is, um, and it may not, his PhD is from King's College. Anybody know where King's College is? That's correct. That's correct. The major Protestant Institute of Higher Learning in, in, uh, in England, I guess. Uh, but having read the introduction, what would you say is the author's central idea, his central thesis? What's his central argument in the introduction of this book? How's he kicking this thing off? I believe that's true. And he makes a statement at the end of the very first paragraph of the introduction. If somebody has it, can read it. Anybody? Exactly. That we've always, we've sung songs. Come, let us all unite to sing. God is love. But he's making the case that you cannot understand God as love. You will not appreciate God as love until you understand and appreciate at a greater level than you do the Holy Trinity of, of God. What did you think about general impression? as you read this introductory section of the book, did it, did it make you want to read more? Did it make you happy? Did it inspire you in any way? I'm curious. Or, or was it a put-off? Curious. Good. How's he going to develop this? How's he going to develop this concept? Good. That's what an introduction is usually supposed to do, is invite you into the, rest of the, uh, into the rest of the book. He says something I thought pretty provocative on, on page, uh, page 10. He said, Christianity is not primarily about lifestyle change. It is about knowing God. Brother Frank, do you say that's a true statement? And what is the what are the implications of knowing God? That is certainly one of the things that comes. Uh, if somebody's got their Bible handy, 
turn to Romans 6 and read 7 through 11. Somebody read that out loud, if you would. Whoever gets there first, rock on. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. The only way we're alive to God, the only way we know God is what? As Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I think the same thoughts. Lance? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Knowing God is a good thing. Jesus, knowing God, knowing Him. And that was where I was headed next. No, 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 no. I'm glad. I love this. But here's the thing. What characterized Jesus? What? He, he did everything that his father said to do. Why? Because he knew his dad. He knew his love. He knew that every word that proceeded from the Father's mouth was good, was loving, was meant for good, not evil. Including the stuff that we don't like sometimes. That might be a little off-putting. Jesus was willing to trust that in his manhood, his sonship. Most of my life, I felt like I could get along pretty well in my Christian life without really knowing much about the Trinity, without having really thought about it much. And that's why I've said to so many people as I've handed this book, I wish I'd read this book when I was 16. Or maybe before I was 16, when I came to Christ. I think my walk would have, I know my walk would have been different while I was in college. Absolutely no, it would have been. 
And that for me, when I read the introduction of this, and that's how I happened upon this book, was I got linked to the introduction, and I read it and said, whoa, man, I want to read that book. I want to read what comes next in this thing. On page 11, he makes this statement. For all that we may give an orthodox nod to belief in the Trinity, it seems too arcane to most of us. Arcane, who, who can define arcane? I had to look it up. I've used it without really knowing exactly what it meant. That's bad, bad on me. No, but it, it has that root. But it means mysterious and generally speaking, only known to some. In, in the Christian, in the history of Christianity, the only known to some folks first that burst upon the scene were who, Taz? The, 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 the only known to some folks that first burst upon the scene in Christian history would be... Exactly. Exactly. The secret knowledge. When you get up here, you, you'll, you'll understand this, but maybe you shouldn't try real hard because it's really just too much for you. I think it's very possibly an attitude of some of the Pharisees. I'm not as sure of that as I am of they were certain that their interpretation was the authoritative one. And by the way, in terms of that, this is an aside. It doesn't relate back to this. But what was, what was Jesus consistently mad at the Pharisees about? Was it that they were really serious about God and the scriptures? Yeah, I mean, basically the accusation he makes is, you are not serious about scriptures. You're teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. That's his beef with the Pharisees. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't even believe in a resurrection where the Pharisees did. Okay. Now, having said all that, Reeves goes into a section where he talks about the mysteries in, in Scripture. What does he say about mystery? Do you remember? Exactly. He says, he says that, a, that a mystery is not mysterious when it's been revealed. It may have been mysterious. Why would God do what he did? Why would he create us? 
Why would he not have just wiped everybody out at the flood? And particularly when it happened again, not that long after the flood, why wouldn't he just chuck the whole thing and set up a different solar system someplace else that worked? Mystery. People pondered that. People that were serious about God pondered that. People probably pondered allusions in the scripture like the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand while I bring your enemies under your feet. What? Who's he talking about? What does this mean? So, again, it's, it's common. I think it's, it's, it's a common reaction when we run up against something that requires thought. When there's, there are certainly elements of God that we know that we will not. They're too high for us, as the psalmist said. But when we hear the term mystery in the New Testament, are we to take that as something that we can't understand? Because every time it's talked about, the mystery is being explained. Right? Every time that the mystery is talked about by Paul, Paul is saying, and now we have what it means. Personally, I have certainly not used that always that way. I've used mystery as a cop-out for something that I didn't want to understand or didn't want to have to try to explain or, or whatever. Too mysterious. And that goes back to that arcane word. This is stuff that I don't need to, I don't need to mess with. This is for the experts and they'll tell me what I ought to think. I don't know if that resonates with you, but it, it absolutely has been something that, uh, that I have done. The other thing I've done is I've said, that thing is not important for me. So really, I've set myself up over this and am making a judgment about whether I'm going to hear what's, what's said or not. So on page 12, in what sense is God a mystery? There's a statement up near the top of, of page 12 that begins with God is a mystery. What's being said?
Okay, so. Right. So there were things that were clouded in the past. In times past, but now. Does that sound a little bit like some sermons that Paul gave? Think of one in particular. He's winked at this stuff in the past, but now he's revealed what your philosophers have been chewing on for hundreds of years. It says, to know the Trinity is to know God, an eternal and personal God of infinite beauty, interest, and fascination. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. That's a really... Sarah, I mean, how does that hit you? Good, good. Well, and, and, you know, homework assignment to everybody that hadn't done it. Read the introduction and then flow into chapter one. We're going to, so this thing won't take, you know, an unmanageable period of time. We're going to more or less do a chapter a week. There may be weeks that will bleed into another, but, but generally speaking, my plan is to think about a chapter a week. The introduction is the setup to this thing. The introduction was, a, was, you know, kind of an ongoing series of, of ahas for me. Like, man, I wish that I could express something that way. That's really good news. Good news is what this is about. This guy is an evangelist. This guy is after... People's souls for God. And this is his central, this is his central starting point. Why? Why would it be his central starting point? This is the hard, this is the hard part in a sense. This is the thing. You know, he has that little inset box here on page 13. That's titled, Scriptural? Really? Then what about Deuteronomy 6, 4? I hear my many Muslim readers cry. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One, not three. By the way, what was the central problem that Muhammad, if you know his history, was trying to address Idolatry. Hundreds of gods. We got hundreds of gods in America. I can very easily make hundreds of gods and have at various times in my life. You probably have made gods 
We have all made ourselves God at a certain level. Standing in judgment over things from our own perspective. So, Muhammad says, man, this polytheism is for the birds. But this is what, this is what Reeves goes on to say. But the point of Deuteronomy 6.4 is not to teach that the Lord our God, the Lord is a mathematical singularity. In the middle of Deuteronomy 6, that would be a bit out of blue to say the least. Out of the blue to say the least. Instead, Deuteronomy 6 is about God's people having the Lord as the one object of their affections. He is the only one worthy of them. And they are to love him alone with all their heart, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6.5. In fact, the word for one in Deuteronomy 6.4 really doesn't convey mathematical singularity at all well. The word is also used, for example, in Genesis 2.24. Where Adam and Eve, two persons, are said to be one. And now we have a hint that... God is providing us in the things that are created, Romans 6.1. He's providing us with ongoing hints about the Trinity. Peter Lightheart, who's been mentioned before in this class by various people, has written a book about that. In effect, the hints of the Trinity... And I had a lot of aha moments as I, was, as I was reading that. The hints of the Trinity in everyday life. I don't know if that's the exact title, but it's kind of, it's, it's kind of the gist of, of where he's coming from in that. All right, we're about to finish today. But one of the issues that we have, Anita brought up. One of the issues with Trinity that was probably at the back at least of some of our minds is that's a manufactured word and if it's a manufactured word it might be a manufactured concept it might be a unbiblical or abiblical concept and he talks about the the idea that the uh, that the that the monks sat around with nothing better than, to do than to you know, think about how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. And, and they came up with this idea of Trinity. But then he says, but that's exploded when you read Paul. Paul is constantly alluding to Father, Son, and Spirit. He's not just alluding to it. He's explicitly talking about it. And I would challenge you, as part of your reading assignment... Read the first gospel sermon on Pentecost and see if you see the Trinity in it. Just read Acts 2 and see, and see what you find there. So, they're using it as a way to express the truth of God, to coin a, to coin a phrase, something that will immediately call to mind the larger truth. And I thought that 
and this will be our final point. I thought that it was particularly strong on page 14. The Christian distinctive. This is what's different about Christianity than any other religion. It says, how important is the Trinity, though? Is it, a, is, it, is it the sticky toffee pudding of faith? And he's an English guy, so I don't particularly understand that, but it might be the chess pie of faith or the uh, whatever of faith. A nice way to round things off, but incidental, or is it the main course? And then he talks about the Athanasian Creed. In other words, what did the early church, which is something that in our heritage, a lot of time has been spent a spent upon. What did the early church think about the Trinity? And this is what the Athanasian Creed says. And you can look at the other creeds that, and we don't know much about creeds out of our heritage either because we thought that was sort of an extra biblical concept instead of long, long sermon series about stuff. These were ways to address what were the creeds for? They were addressing what? Heresy. They were addressing major error that threatened the church. Threatened the truth. Threatened what people were putting their confidence and their weight down on. And this is how it begins. This is the Athanasian Creed. Whosoever will be saved... Before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic, that is, the church's orthodox faith. In other words, the faith that, we might say, everybody who is a Christian believes. And what is that? Which faith everyone do keep whole and undefiled, Without doubt, except everyone keep whole and defiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. So the, the gauntlet has been thrown, the line has been drawn in the sand. What is that one thing before all others in regard to the heresies of that day? And I would argue the heresies of our day. And the universal underlying belief held by true Christians, which is what Catholic faith means, is this. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And this is the last thought on page 15, bottom of the page. For what makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God. Which God we worship. That is the article of faith that stands before all others. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you don't know... God, 
What, are you, what is your faith in? The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself in every aspect of the gospel. Creation, revelation, salvation is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God. The triune God. And with that, we'll close. Please, if you would, if you haven't read the intro, please read it. If you're like me, you'll find yourself underlining and putting exclamation points in the margins and, and all sorts of silly stuff. But read it. Read chapter 1. And because these are not long chapters, your extra credit assignment is to read the first gospel sermon in Acts 2. Thank you.